I love um, what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity in his chapter entitled, The Invasion. And he says, in his experience, reality is usually odd. It is not neat, not obvious, not what you expect. For instance, when you have grasped that the earth and the other planets all go around the sun, you would naturally expect that all the planets were made to match, all at equal distances from each other, say, or distances that regularly increased, or all the same size, or getting bigger or smaller as they go farther from the sun. In fact, you find no rhyme or reason that we can see about either the sizes or the distances, and some of them have one moon, one has four, one has two, some have none, and one has a ring. Reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. And that's especially revealed in Christianity's grandest miracle, like the heart of it all, that it's about God himself coming down the mountain, as we looked at last week in Psalm 15, coming down the mountain to become one with us, even one of us, to invade this occupied world, to redeem us and all things by taking the cost of our rebellion onto himself. And who would ever have guessed something like that? And so J.I. Packer says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. So none of your Marvel movies, none of your Harry Potter movies, and yes, not even the Lord of the Rings movies, none of your fictional, fantastic, mind-bending Movies, not even the more realistic ones that have incredible special effects, none of them is as stunningly amazing, jaw-dropping as is the truth that God becomes flesh. So think of C.S. Lewis's last battle. So Narnia is coming to an end and... However, Aslan's people are able to enter Aslan's country, but they enter Aslan's country, the glorified Narnia, the glorified world, really, and they enter it through a stable. And so inside the stable, if you remember, it's small and smelly and dark and dirty and cramped. But through the back door of the stable, you walk into Aslan's country. And so one character remarks, 
the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places to which Lucy responds, yes. And in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Bigger than our whole universe in that manger. Bigger than all the incredible captivating photos of the James Webb Space Telescope. Bigger. And so David Platt was in Indonesia outside a temple, a Buddhist temple, and he was talking to a Muslim leader and a Hindu leader, and they were enlightened religious people, and they were talking amongst themselves, coming to an agreement between their two views of God, and they said, you know, really it's just that all religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different. And then they looked at Platt and said, what do you think? And he goes, well, it seems to me that's what you were saying. It seems to me that you believe that all religions are essentially a mountain. We all climb from different routes and ultimately we get to the top in our own way into the presence of God. Yes, yes, that's it, we're all the same. And then he said, what if I could tell you something different? Let me tell you about the God who didn't stay on the mountain demanding that we climb up. But what if God came down the mountain to give us what we need and bring us up with himself? One of the greatest passages in all of scripture to depict that huge descent is the beautiful prologue of the Gospel of John. And over the next two or three weeks, we're gonna look at that. The most important thing about Christmas is a number of things are said in the Gospels, beautiful things, heartwarming things, but the most important thing is the identity of the baby in the manger. So, Luke reports that the angel Gabriel gives these astonishing words when she announces to the Virgin Mary, you're gonna conceive Messiah. Gabriel says to Mary, he says, Mary, he's gonna be great. He's gonna be the son of the most high. He's gonna reign over David's throne forever. And then in a delicate, mysterious manner, he tells Mary something of how that will happen. And in Luke, the whole triune God is depicted as involved. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you the power of the Most High, the Father, will overshadow you so that the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now the problem is, 
Greco-Roman culture used the phrase son of God. A Greek man or woman might hear the title son of God and hear this beautiful, riveting, stirring description and say, oh, you mean like when Zeus would come down and be with a human woman and produce a demigod? No. What you mean when a Roman emperor upon his death would be deified and be part of the pantheon of Roman deities? No. Or you mean when the Hebrews say that the king is in a sense son of God because represents God to the people? Well, no. And so John writes one of the most remarkable elevated passages in scripture an overture that begins the whole symphony of his gospel, the prologue to his gospel in order to present to us what is meant by son of God. Calvin in his opening argument to the commentary on John, he writes, the three gospels are fully narrate the life and death of Jesus, the three other gospels, but John focuses on the doctrine so that all four gospels have one end in view to point to Christ, but the other three exhibit his body while John exhibits his soul. He goes to the heart of what it means to be son of God. So let's read this astounding section of scripture together. In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear a witness about the light that all men might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon Grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, 
the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The grass withers and the flowers fade and this portion of scripture too endures forever. I just have one point and the baby born in Bethlehem is God. So John opens by speaking of the word. He doesn't start by speaking of the son of God. His goal in the prologue is to identify the word with the son of God who became flesh. He selects this theme of the word because the concept like sparked all kinds of thoughts in the ancient world. And at the same time, it was less subject to misunderstanding than the son of God. By identifying the word with the son, his purpose is to prove that the baby born in the manger is none other than God the son in flesh. So to call Jesus the word is is provocative at the least. It's mind-stretching. So Greco-Roman used the term in various ways, and John is trying to appeal to that culture. It's a wonderful model of evangelistic preaching. Let me speak of something you think highly of and tell you what it really is. And so Greco-Roman used that term, the word, to speak of this eternal, creating, rational, directing force or principle in the universe. They had an idea that it all held together somehow, and so that's how they tended to explain it. Greater than the gods of our pantheon is this word. And so John takes that point of connection And while saying that this word is not impersonal, he does agree that what I'm speaking to you about is the underlying reality of all things, the source of all rationality that you see. So Stephen Hawking in his book, A Brief History of Time, says, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. That's what he devoted his life to. John is saying this unifying principle at the heart of all existence is the word, and he's not a force and principle, he's a him. But John's background to the word is not Greco-Roman, it's Old Testament, he's steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. That's why he introduces it, in the beginning was the word. He puts it squarely to understand it in the context of Genesis one. With God creating all things through the word, God speaking and his powerful word creates it. God says, let there be light and from nowhere, from utter void and darkness, light appears. God's word is so effective in accomplishing God's will that through scripture it's even personified. So you think of Psalm 33, for example, it says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. 
Or Psalm 107, he sent out his word like an emissary and healed them and delivered them from destruction. The personification of the word, it's so effective in accomplishing God's will. It's his agent of his will. So John takes this idea and declares, God's word isn't just a personification, it is a person. God made it through a person. A person is the unifying center of reality. And Packer and others helpfully relate that John speaks of seven things about the word in John 1. So first he speaks of the words eternity. In the beginning was the word. It's this intentional allusion against Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we're placed at this heart-stopping brink of God at the point of calling into existence all things. But John takes us back behind that point to what was always the case. He takes us further back behind creation into eternity itself And he says to us, before creation came into being, the word was, was, eternity. Second, the word's personality, and the word was with God. Now the usage of that particular preposition, with, it's actually a preposition that means to, towards. You could say the word was to God or towards God. It conveys the sense of the word having face-to-face interaction with God. Or even that the word was in God's home. The idea is active face-to-face involvement and communication, a distinct person in relationship with another person. It's personality. Third, the word's deity. And the word was God. And this is this huge mic drop moment, like this This person in interaction face-to-face with God isn't a lesser being, an elevated being, though the first creation, it's God. For a Jewish monotheist who believes in one God with everything about him, to declare that is astounding. This being is God. And some cults and heretical groups have rejected this. They allege the grammar means and the word was a God. If we had time today, I'd walk you through it. It doesn't support that argument contextually or grammatically. It can only mean the word was God. And John plainly sets forth this incredible mystery of the oneness of God and the plurality of persons within the oneness of God. It's mind-boggling to us, but that's the revelation of Scripture, and beautifully so. For us and for our salvation, the Word is God. 
The word possesses all the attributes of God. He's fully God, very God, light of light. All the incommunicable attributes of God, those that only God has that not his creature has. Things like self-existence, things like infinity, all the omnis, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. He possesses it all. He possesses the communicable attributes, those of which you and I made in God's image have some vestige and some analogy in our being. Things like reason and justice and most pronounced in scripture, love. Because in the very being of God, this interaction of the Father and the Son, there's incredible love. Creation is a springing forth of the overflow of the love of the Father for the Son. Love is creative. Love desires to share, and that's what we experience in our world from God. And forth the words creativity. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The word is the Father's agent of creation. Nothing came into existence without him or apart from him. The Father brought every single thing into existence by means of and through the world. Word, he created galaxies and supernova and black holes. He created the smallest things, even down to the atoms, even the elemental principles of quarks that compose atoms, all of it came into existence through the word. And fifth, the word's vitality in him was life. He's the agent of creation in general and the agent of creation of life in particular. It's, almost, it's only because he himself is Life that there is any such thing as life in any living being. He both gives it and sustains it. In a real sense, according to scripture, you and I are constantly connected to a life support entity, which is the Son. Sixth, the word as revelation, and the life was the light of men. When God, through his agent, the word, gives life to mankind, he also gives him light. Life is found in the word because the word is life, and light is found in the word because the word is light. And so what it means is that mankind created through the word possesses light, meaning intellectual ability and moral sensitivity. We, we understand things. The word enables man to make sense of and live appropriately in this world. It gives him a conscience and enables him to understand creation. In fact, to look through creation to say, what must the creator be like? And then seventh, the word, all of this, the word incarnate. And the word became this word that I've just expanded your mind on, this word, is the one who became flesh. And that is the mic drop of mic drops. That the word who is all of that is very one who is conceived 
in the womb of Mary and becomes the baby in the manger. He becomes flesh, meaning not just taking a body, but he takes a human nature, a real human nature. The person of the son takes inextricably to who he is, a human nature, never to disassociate himself from that human nature, but joins to himself something he did not previously have and take upon himself a human nature, flesh meaning not just any human nature, but a human nature that suffers from the effects of the fall, from weariness and burdens and cares and sicknesses, from the heights of all he is down the mountain to take human flesh and to be a baby in the manger, he who in whom all things depend is now a dependent baby in the manger needing to be cared for and fed and clothed and changed and cleaned and sustained and protected by his mother. And he clinches the argument of the identity of the word in verse 14 when he says, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son of the father full of grace and truth. That this one, the word, is the one who became flesh and that person that we were with for three years, we saw the very glory of God and he's the only begotten son of the father. Such that in verse 18, no one has ever seen God but there's one that always existed in the side of the chest or the bosom of the Father who makes him known. And that word is exegesis to draw out the meaning that we haven't seen the Father, but we see the Son and he walked among us. And when he walked among us, we saw the very nature and character of God revealed to us. And that this one and no one less than this one is the one that came into our reality And so what's the identity of the baby in the manger? What does it mean that he's the son of God? Well, he's the word, the underlying reality, the rationality of all things, the ground and the unifying center of the universe. He's eternal, he's personal, he's God himself. He's the agent of creation, he's the life giver, he's the revealer. And the one without ceasing to be what he always was took to himself a human nature and became man suffering all the effects of the fall. And so indeed in that stable and that Christmas morning, that stable had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. And so why did he have to do that? Why, why did it take someone with such caliber to save us. And so Dr. Kelly says it takes someone as big as God to remove sins and transform the created order. And no lesser being could accomplish it. It takes God. And the heart-stopping truth is it takes God the Son himself. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born of a law, to redeem those who were under the law. But what really brings this home to us, as he did all that, not just to keep us near, but that we would have the adoption of sons. And so the one that lived in the bosom of the father who knew the father intimately, face to face in loving relationship, he comes down the mountain 
not just to become man, but to suffer everything a fallen man would, then to go to the depths itself and to hell itself to undo the curse on sin in order to redeem us and buy us back. Why? To, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God, born not by the will of man or the will of flesh, but by God. That the son would come in order to secure for you what he always enjoyed from all eternity to make you, who are without hope and without promise, sons and daughters of the Father by grace through faith in the Son. And so Christmas is about God doing the unimaginable for us. God coming down in the Son from the heights of heaven, the vastness of affinity into our sinful, broken world. And so what Christmas tells us is that we're more broken and sinful than we ever fathomed. It took God. And we're more loved than we ever dared dream. God comes down and is willing to do so. And to do so by giving us what his own beloved son always enjoyed. Indeed, fact is better than fiction. Who could have guessed such a salvation? And that's the gospel of Christmas. And so might we be floored anew by it today? And oh, might we believe in this son today? Amen. Let's stand.